There are just two sentences in Section 4 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It's known as the Public Debt Clause, and it's tucked away in a robust amendment that was designed to achieve a new birth of freedom with guarantees of national citizenship, equal protection of the law, and due process. The Public Debt Clause states, The validity of the public debt of the United States, authorized by law, shall not be questioned. And that leads to a conundrum. Given today's outcries about debt limits and fiscal cliffs, once the public money has been authorized by Congress to be spent, does the executive branch have the authority to act on its own to guarantee the debt is paid? Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In this episode, the debt ceiling and the 14th Amendment will drill down on why the public debt clause was written, how it's been interpreted over time, and how things might play out today if it were invoked by President Biden as a way out of the debt impasse. Joining us are two of America's leading constitutional scholars and historians. Eric Foner is DeWitt Clinton Professor Emeritus of History at Columbia University. His book, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, won the Pulitzer, Bancroft, and Lincoln Prizes for 2011. And Gerard Magliaca, is Samuel Rosen Professor at the Indiana University McKinney School of Law. He's the author of Washington's Heir, The Life of Justice Bushrod Washington. Professor Foner, let's start with you. You recently wrote an op-ed for the New York Times calling on President Biden to invoke the debt clause of the 14th Amendment. Tell us why Section 4 was written, what was its historical context, and what were the framers trying to accomplish? Well, Section 4, like other parts of the 14th Amendment, has several purposes and several parts. Uh, You might say that the whole 14th Amendment is meant to put into the Constitution what the victorious North felt were, were the consequences of the Civil War, other than the abolition of slavery, which already had been handled in the 13th Amendment. So, Section four of the 14th Amendment deals with some of the financial consequences of the Civil War. Among other things, it says that the Confederate debt will not be repaid. If if Southerners loaned money to the Confederate government, they're not getting that back. Their bonds will be worthless. Uh, It says that nobody's going to get compensation for the loss of their slave property. If that's uh, that, that no, no chance of getting paid for that. And it says, although in odd language, that the national debt, the money, the bonds that were issued and sold in order to help finance the war will not be questioned, which is a funny way of putting it. But what it really means is the national debt will be paid. It's not going to be uh, reduced. It's not going to be repudiated. It's part of the result of the war. During the Civil War, in order to finance it, the federal government issued an enormous amount of paper money, greenbacks. It, It borrowed money that is selling bonds, which would be repaid later on, but they borrowed that money by to help pay for the war. Uh, 
So really the purpose of Section 4 is to guarantee that these financial aspects of consequences of the Civil War are in the Constitution and cannot be changed by southern states or by northern ones either. There was talk by the time the 14th Amendment was being debated in Congress, uh, talk of paying back the bonds or some of the bonds, one issue of bonds, the so-called 520s, uh, paying them back in paper money. Most of the other bonds were paid back to the loaners in gold, which was worth a lot more than paper money, which had depreciated in value. But uh, the law didn't specify exactly how these 520s were going to be paid. And so that became a big political issue in the aftermath of the Civil War. So that's a slightly complex answer. But the main point for our purposes here is that the national debt would not be in any way interfered with or repudiated. Tell us more about the story of the payback of the 520s. They're wonderful characters, including Senator Hendricks of Indiana, Jay Cook, George Pendleton. Um, who, who were these characters and what was the what was the battle they were fighting about? You know, they are interesting characters. Many of them are not exactly household names. I dare say very few people have heard of George Frederick's nowadays. Uh, Pendleton was uh, very prominent at that time, not known very much today. He was the vice presidential nominee of the Democratic Party in 1864 and was angling to get the nomination to run for president in 68. And it was uh, Pendleton, George Pendleton, who came up, or at least his name was associated with this idea of paying back these bonds in paper money. Now, you might say, well, they were bought, uh, bought in paper money. What's the problem here? Uh, if, if bondholders are paid back in gold, they're going to get a windfall because gold was far more valuable than paper money, which was deteriorating. There was something called the gold, um, I can't remember the exact term now, uh, the gold premium, let's put it that way, the gold premium, which reached up toward almost uh, 40 or 50 percent uh, by this period, so that the paper money, you'd have to really pay twice as much as the face value uh, to get gold for it. So, you know, this was part of the debate about the consequences of the Civil War. Now, Jay Cook was a financier, a banker from Ohio, very close to Secretary of the Treasury Chase, uh, probably a little closer than he should have been uh, by modern standards of, uh, you know, of uh, proper behavior on the part of members of, uh, of the administration, etc. But uh, he had worked out a deal with Secretary of the Treasury Chase. He would become the salesman for federal bonds saying, you know, most of these bonds are bought by the banks. But Jay Cook said, you know, there's a lot of ordinary people who would like to make a little profit here. The interest payments on the bonds are also paid in gold, and that's going to be good for the holders. So he hired an army of salesmen who went around the North selling in small denominations uh, these bonds issued by the federal government. And, you know, he realized that he would make a fortune just selling a lot of these things, and he did. And this was one of the first times that the that this national debt was actually marketed in small amounts to ordinary Americans. You know, so Jay Cook profited enormously just by selling these bonds to farmers, to working men, to those who wanted to make a profit, and also those who uh, were patriotic and wanted to help uh, support and finance 
the Civil War, which cost an enormous amount of money. I think the federal budget for the last year of the Civil War was greater than the entire sum of all the federal budgets from the revolution up to the Civil War. So this was a completely unprecedented amount of money that the government had to spend, and uh, they managed to do it. But the the question of repaying the bonds kind of got caught in this political debate. Professor Magliaca, you're the author of the definitive biography of John Bingham. Tell us about how the debate over Section 4 of the 14th Amendment related to Bingham and the Reconstruction Republicans' financial policies after the war and their, their fear that the South might in the future take control of the legislature and, and repudiate the war debt. Well, as you say, one concern that people had basically was what would happen when the former Confederates returned to Congress? Would they sabotage the Union in a way that they were unable to do during the actual war. So one aspect of that was, of course, the idea of excluding some of these former Confederates from returning to office. That was Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Now, with respect to Section 4, a concern that was expressed by Bingham, especially when he was out on the campaign stump in 1866, was not only that former Confederates might not want to pay the national debt, but also that they would not want to pay the pensions of the service members who had died during the Civil War or been wounded. And of course, that was a good way of explaining it to ordinary voters, right? To say, we have a sacred obligation to make payments to wounded soldiers and widows and orphans of dead soldiers. And the former Confederacy might not want to support this or might not want their money to go to the pensions of the soldiers that had invaded their states. So basically, you you can sort of see all of this as a kind of either anti-sabotage kind of rule that they were setting up about the national debt, because military pensions were specifically mentioned in Section 4 as being part of the debt that could not be questioned, that is, the debt that was owed to these soldiers. And you could also understand it as just a way of trying to persuade people to support the rest of the amendment. That is to say, the cause of supporting pensions for soldiers was a popular one. Therefore, you could use that as a way to help support other provisions of the amendment that were more controversial or maybe less uh, simple to explain uh, out, out out to the country. So um, those were a couple of the concerns that that were raised at that time. Well, I'm now going to read the text of uh, Section 4, and here it is. It says, The validity of the public debt of the United States, authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. Professor Foner, we've already heard that there was a debate about what it means for the public debt to not be questioned. Um, and, and there's a debate about whether you need complete repudiation or default of the debt or, or something that just substantially calls into question public obligations. In, in light of the history, how would you construe the meaning of that first sentence of the 14th Amendment? What does it mean to say that the public debt shall not be questioned? 
Well, that language is very peculiar. There's no question about it. Uh, what does it mean to say it, it, it? Is that a violation of someone's freedom of speech that you can't get up and say, I have a question to raise about the uh, validity of the national debt? Um, I think if you read the debates in Congress, now this provision was not debated nearly as much as, let's say, Section 1, by far the most important part nowadays of the 14th Amendment. It was not debated as much as African-American suffrage, which was on the political agenda, and there was a lot of division about that. So um, if you just want to take the so-called originalist approach, you will run into a wall soon because there's not that much discussion of this. In the North, they just said, look, the uh, national debt has to be paid and uh, the soldiers have to get their money and the bondholders, etc. And many Southerners, as we heard, uh, were seemed to be questioning the way that the debt would be uh, paid back, or at least thinking about maybe they could get some compensation for the loss of their slaves. Uh, so, you know, I think if you look at the context, the historical context, 1866, when this is being debated in Congress, um, it, it's it's a way of trying to prevent in the future what they call repudiation. Now, the chance of the debt being repudiated, that is of Congress just saying, we're not paying any of these bonds back, uh, the chance of that was pretty remote, I think you'd have to say. but. Partial repudiation, the Pendleton plan, which I mentioned before from George Pendleton of Ohio, who said, unlike other bonds, these bonds are being paid back in paper money, not in gold. Uh, that was seen as repudiation by bondholders. They wanted gold, which was worth much more than the paper money. Um, would that be uh, enacted if Democrats got back into control of the uh, House and the Senate? So in a way, the purpose of, of Section 4 is to head off the Pendleton plan, um, is to head off the possibility of these 520 bonds, as they were called, being uh, repaid back to the person who had loaned them in paper money. So that's the specific aim to deal with the question of those particular bonds. But the more general aim is to just make sure that uh, the entire federal debt at some point or another be paid back. Now, of course, usually the federal debt is not all paid back. Uh, we have a pretty large debt today. I doubt if anyone thinks it's all going to be just paid back and there won't be any national debt anymore. Uh, but, you know, this was part of the politics of debating the consequences of the Civil War for American society. Let's fast forward from the post-Civil War era to the Great Depression era. It's 1933. The United States economy is in shambles, and FDR has announced a series of measures to prop up the economy, notably the controversial move to take the U.S. off the gold standard. Our dollar is now altogether too much influenced by the internal policies of other nations. Therefore, the United States must take firmly in its own hands the control of the gold value of our dollar. Professor Magliaca, the Supreme Court interpreted Section 4 just once in Perry versus United States in 1935. It had to do with FDR's gold policy. Tell us what's going on in Perry, what the court held, and what the implications are for the meaning of Section 4. Sure. So to pick up on the theme of gold repayments versus paper repayments of debt, when Franklin Roosevelt took office in 1933, Congress 
took the United States off the gold standard and basically said that from now on, we would be relying entirely or basically on a paper money system. And this meant that the bondholders at that time were no longer going to be paid back in gold dollars as they were promised, but would be paid back in paper dollars. And as Professor Foner indicated, of course, paper dollars were worth less, roughly a quarter or third less uh, than the gold dollars. So the bondholders sued and basically said, look, uh, you promised us repayment in gold dollars. You're breaking your promise. We are entitled to damages. Now, this case was highly controversial at the time because when it came before the Supreme Court, people were frankly worried there would be a financial panic if the court held that the decision to basically change the monetary standard was unconstitutional. I mean, consider that banks held a lot of these bonds, a lot of financial instruments were based on them. What was going to happen if you suddenly said that a lot of them were unlawful? Uh, and indeed, it's the only case in the history of the Supreme Court where the court issued a statement at one point saying, the decision is not coming down tomorrow, right? Because they wanted to make clear to people that uh, there wouldn't be uh, a reason to sort of start rumor mongering or that sort of thing in the financial markets. Every other case the Supreme Court's ever decided, they, they just never tell us when, when it's coming out. It just comes out when it comes out. So that gives you an idea of how important it was. Now, uh, what did the court do? Well, in a four justice opinion by Chief Justice Hughes, not a majority opinion, the court held that it was unconstitutional for Congress to basically not pay the bondholders back in gold dollars. Uh, they then, though, said, well, the bondholders aren't entitled to any damages. Now, the explanation that the court gave for that, without getting into the weeds too much, basically made little sense and was widely criticized, um, but was understood as being something they felt that they had to do because to issue a remedy to the bondholders would cause a panic. And that simply wasn't something they were going to do. So some people at the time compared the Perry case to Marbury versus Madison in the sense of saying, well, the court in Marbury said, gee, Marbury really should have gotten his judgeship. It was wrong that he didn't, but he, he can't get it. And then they came up with some reason why he couldn't get it that, that didn't really make all that much sense. Um, and so importantly for what Chief Justice Hughes's opinion said is he said that, uh, section four of the 14th amendment didn't just apply to the debt rung up during the civil war. It applied to the debt of the United States more generally in keeping with this sort of broader language in the text. So basically that at least means that section four could apply to current debt issues, right? It's not limited in historical time. Uh, the court also sort of seemed to say that there was actually a kind of general principle that went back to the founding that the United States had to repay its debts uh, in some general sense, that that was kind of inherent in the nature of borrowing on the credit of the United States. You were sort of implicitly pledging to repay these debts, and that Section 4 was merely confirming this kind of, we'll call it Hamiltonian understanding, 
right, rather than creating something new. Now, one final point, the court rejected the idea that you needed a total repudiation of debt for Section 4 or the Constitution more generally to apply. The United States made that argument in the brief saying, look, only a total repudiation of the debt is a constitutional violation and paying people back in paper money isn't a total repudiation. But the court said that that, that wasn't correct because it, it was you were, in effect, questioning the obligation by paying it back in an amount less than was initially promised. So that means that a partial repudiation is something that could come within the ambit of the Constitution. But the only thing is, it's not a majority opinion. So it's not binding in any way should a case be brought now around Section 4 or some issue regarding a, a sort of partial default. So we just we have not a whole lot of law to go on should there be a controversy today. Professor Foner, so the Supreme Court has held that a partial repudiation can trigger Section 4. In your New York Times op-ed, you called on President Biden to invoke Section 4. What would what constitutional argument do you advise that he invoke, and what would be the constitutional support for it? <laughs> My, uh, let me just say that I am not a law professor. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. I'm giving you my view as a historian, and the imperatives of history and of law are not always exactly the same thing. But my argument uh, is that the debt limit is itself unconstitutional because it puts the United States in a position where it, it will be repudiating part of the debt. If the debt limit is not extended, um, then the country will default. And, and we don't know exactly how or what the Federal Reserve and the Treasury are, seem to be thinking about this and who would get paid, who wouldn't get paid, which uh, obligations of the federal government are going to be prioritized. Uh, is it uh, Social Security checks? Is it payment to some of the bondholders who hold the national debt? Um, my argument is very simple. It's that President Biden should ignore the debt limit if it gets to the point where there is no choice but to uh, abide by the debt limit and therefore not pay some of the obligations uh, of the government, that there is a basically a conflict between the debt limit, which is, a le is legislation passed by Congress, and the requirement of the 14th Amendment, Section 4, that um, the <laughs> national debt not be questioned. If the federal government doesn't uh, pay uh, what its obligations when they come up, that would certainly seem to be questioning the validity of the national debt. Uh, there are other ideas floating around, as you know, some of them seem pretty zany, like printing a trillion dollar, uh, making a trillion dollar coin and depositing it in the treasury and uh, borrowing money against it. Uh, I, I still don't understand how people think that actually would work, but that's not what we're here to discuss. Um, so basically my argument is the debt limit itself, if the government has to abide by it, is in violation of the section four of the constitution and the requirement that the national debt not be questioned. 
Professor Magliaca, what do you make of Professor Foner's argument that the debt limit itself may be unconstitutional under Section 4? Uh, the debt limit was enacted for the first time by Congress in 1917. Tell us about that history and whether or not you agree with Professor Foner that it may violate the Constitution. So I don't agree that the debt ceiling violates the Constitution. The debt ceiling was put in to make it easier for the Treasury to borrow. Now, that, that may seem odd, but Prior to that time, every time there was a need to borrow money, you had to get a specific authorization from Congress. So the debt ceiling, which was put in during the First World War, when, of course, we needed to borrow a lot more money, was a way of saying, okay, now you don't need a specific authorization every time you want to take out debt. You can just borrow as much as you need up to whatever the ceiling is. And then every time after that, for many, many years, the ceiling was just always raised and there was no issue. I don't think that the debt ceiling is unconstitutional because there are other means of paying back debt besides getting more debt. You can do it through spending reductions or tax increases, right? Now, the fact that those are either politically impossible or maybe just we know they're not going to happen, doesn't make the debt ceiling unconstitutional. That said, if we reach a point where there could be a default, the president or the treasury faces nothing but bad choices and will have to break some law somewhere. That is, either they're not paying the bondholders back, that's breaking the promise to them, they're not spending money on certain things because they don't have enough money, right? Because they can't borrow more. Uh, that's also breaking the law, right? By not spending on what Congress has appropriated. Or they would, I guess, have to raise taxes without any kind of legal authorization to do that. So they have to, the president or the treasurer would have to break the law somewhere. So what's the least bad way of breaking the law and I guess my view on that would be the least bad way would be to make sure that debt payments continue and simply not spend money on certain things if there's not enough money coming in to cover all of the expenses that the federal government has. Now, my reasoning for that is to say that a central principle of both American and English constitutional law, going back to the struggle between the kings and parliament in England, was the king cannot get his own money. He can't borrow money on his own. He can't get taxes on his own. He has to have an authorization. That's what all of those struggles were about. Spending, yes, but a little less so in the sense of, well, if the king had money, he, he could spend it, I mean, and it's it just he didn't have enough money usually to spend on what he wanted to spend on. Uh, but I don't pretend that any of these are great solutions. One other thing I would add is, if the president were to follow Professor Foner's advice, it's not clear that anyone could stop the president from ignoring the debt ceiling. That is, it's not clear anyone would have standing to sue. Uh, the bondholders would be paid. They are happy. Congress would be upset, but it's not clear that they could bring a lawsuit to challenge the president's action. It would probably be more like bringing an impeachment or using other tools to express their displeasure. So 
even if you think the president cannot ignore the debt ceiling, it's not clear anyone can do anything about it if he does. Professor Foner, how would your proposal play out in court? Would someone have standing to <laughs> sue? And given the fact that in the 1930s, the Supreme Court came up with this Marbury versus Madison-like solution of saying that there was a, a, a violation of a right, but no remedy, how, how might the court confront such a lawsuit? Well, first of all, I'm not sure that the you know plan that we heard a minute ago would work very well either. I think one of the problems here is, as was said, almost anything that uh, that uh, could be done once the debt limit is breached would violate something. It would require the violation of laws that that have appropriated money and directed the spending of money. And if we don't have that money, we can't do it because of the debt ceiling. So a measure or a or policy that requires the president to break the law doesn't sound constitutional to me. After all, one of the president's duties in the Constitution is to ensure that the laws are uh, abided by and, um, you know, uh, put into effect, etc. I also think that it's not at all guaranteed that the government would prioritize payments to bondholders. In fact, it might look very, it might become unpopular if people say, well, um, social security checks are not going out this week because of the debt limit, but we are making sure that our bondholders, many of whom are quite well to do, let's put it this way, that they'll get their money so we don't breach the uh, debt limit or uh, default on our payments. Um, I'm not sure that kind of prioritization would uh, fly very well uh, when many people who are <laughs> expecting money from the federal government are not getting it, but across the street they're seeing bondholders uh, sitting pretty with their with the money that is uh, owed to them. Um, what would the court say? I've stopped long ago trying to predict what uh, courts will do or say, and uh, the current Supreme Court, who knows, would they want to um, send the, gov- the, the economy into a kind of crisis by saying, no, you uh, can't, uh, that the debt limit is, has to be abided by and the government is going to have to go into default? I don't know. I don't know what the opinions of most of the members of the Supreme Court are on these financial issues that have never, well, maybe once now, uh, as we heard, have never really been adjudicated uh, before the Supreme Court. So, um, it's an unprecedented situation, and I think right now it's pretty much speculation as to what the courts or Congress or the president will do if we actually get to a point where uh, the government just can't pay its bills and can't pay its debts. Let's hope we don't get to that point. Professor Magliaca, say more about your conclusion that only a significant or substantial reduction in debt validity is a constitutional violation, not just any modification or reduction. But you conclude that in this case, there would be a substantial or significant reduction if the government didn't pay its bills, and therefore President Biden uh, should prioritize paying back bondholders before other uh, other creditors. Well, what I meant to say by that was if there were a one or two day delay in making debt payments before a deal is worked out with Congress, I don't know that that leads to a constitutional violation. You might say that that's sufficiently de minimis or trivial that you've not actually violated Section 4 or any other kind of constitutional principle. 
admittedly, I don't have a good answer as to well, where do you cross from something that's de minimis to something that's significant enough to create a constitutional violation. Uh, but I mean, there is at least some wiggle room, it seems to me, for a political accommodation to be worked out before you are going to invoke the kind of constitutional machinery. Um, look, that said, if a case were to come before the court about any issue regarding this, you, you again, at some point, the kind of cost imposed by having the court unwind transactions that have been entered into, whether it's spending that's been done or bonds that have been issued, would cause chaos. And they're probably not going to do it. You know, to take a simple example, let's say that the president spends money uh, or doesn't spend money and the court were to come in and say, no, no, you had to spend the money or you should, you know, you should have, you shouldn't have spent the money, something like that. Well, okay, but what kind of remedy can they really order? You know, take the money back from people that it was spent on uh, or, oh, now you have to spend some money. Or if there were bonds issued in defiance of the debt ceiling, well, are those bonds then null and void? And then, well, what happens to, say, banks that own them or financial institutions that have them? So again, it, it's the same problem the court confronted in the 1930s, maybe not to the same degree, but kind of, well, trying to unwind that kind of thing would risk a financial crisis. So they'll probably just come up with some explanation for why they're not going to do anything. Now, they had an easy answer in the 1930s, which was, or uh, well, their answer now would be easier than their answer in the 1930s. Now they could just say nobody has standing to bring a challenge. In the 1930s, they needed a more convoluted explanation because the bondholders did have standing since they were claiming that they were supposed to be getting more money uh, than they were getting. Professor Foner, the last big showdown over the debt ceiling was in 2011 when President Obama was, was in office. At that time, former President Bill Clinton said that if he were Obama, he would take matters into his own hands by invoking the 14th Amendment without hesitation and force the courts to stop me. President Clinton said that the 14th Amendment argument first surfaced when he was president in 1994 when the Republicans in Congress, led by Newt Gingrich, first floated the idea of invoking it. As a historian, and in light of the fact that the 14th Amendment argument has emerged in 94, in 2011, and today, how should history guide President Biden as he decides whether or not to invoke it? Well, two instances <laughs> don't necessarily make an overall pattern, obviously, and don't necessarily predict what will happen now. Um, I think uh, history uh, is pretty difficult to predict. Um, I don't know if future is, if this happens, if the worst happens and the debt ceiling just blocks the, eventually blocks the government from spending money or refusing to spend money or paying back bondholders or not paying this group and paying that group. If you get into a real financial mess, uh, then, you know, the buck stops here. And I think people in the future will probably blame uh, President Biden for not, uh, not doing something, even if they may not know what he should have done. If you have a deal made in the last minute, sort of like happened with President Obama back in 2011, uh, when, you know, they, there was a deal about cutting spending and raising the debt limit and all that, so there was no default by the government, um, 
depends on your politics, I guess, whether you think that's a good idea or not. I mean, one problem here is why do we even have this debt limit in the first place? Congress keeps appropriating money it doesn't have, and then it comes up against this borrowing limit. Uh, as, as was said, we're not talking here about future spending. We're talking about spending that's already been authorized uh, and enacted and often spent by Congress. But now we're going to, it's like a credit card. Now we're at the end of the month and we have to pay back uh, what's on our credit card. We have to pay the credit card dealer, even though we've already enjoyed the use of that money. Um, I, I think what history should say is they should get rid of this debt limit legislation and uh, figure out how they're going to pay for those things they want to uh, they want the government to do. That would seem the most prudent um, course of action. But um, we live at a time when politics is very unpredictable. Professor Magliaca, your thoughts about more lessons from history in the 1930s, President Roosevelt prepared a radio address that was going to denounce the court, and he was bummed that he couldn't deliver it after the court stepped back from the brink. This is obviously uh, an example of a complicated mix between constitutional law and politics. What do the lessons of the 1930s tell us about how the courts and the political actors should proceed today? Right. So as I mentioned, the cases in the 1930s were very high profile and controversial. And people really were afraid that there would be a financial panic and bankruptcy if the court ruled the wrong way. And of course, it was only a five to four decision in the end to say that the bondholders weren't entitled to anything. Um, And FDR did prepare an address that he was going to give if the government lost the case in which he was going to say, look, uh, we are not going to pay the bondholders back. We're going to proceed as if we had won the case. And then the plan was essentially for the United States to invoke sovereign immunity and thereby not have to pay damages to the bondholders. Now, this would have been a very dramatic confrontation. And indeed, I think it's fair to say the court was aware that this was a possibility, which is why they came up with a reason not to order a remedy, much in the way that John Marshall did in Marbury, because he knew that Jefferson would not obey a decision that commanded that Marbury become a judge. One lesson here is that constitutional provisions that deal with financial matters are just very difficult to enforce. You know, consider many states have a constitutional provision that says you have to have a balanced budget. Okay, well, what happens if there isn't a balanced budget? Well, for a court to do something about that, that would inevitably mean saying you have to cut spending, you have to raise taxes. Well, which taxes are you going to raise or which spending is going to be cut? Those are decisions that are not legal determinations. They're they're political or policy oriented. Right. So. In effect, it's better to understand these kinds of provisions as being directed towards either the legislature or the political branches. You know, that is, the people who ought to be paying attention to Section 4 of the 14th Amendment are members of Congress, right? They ought to be taking it seriously and not calling the validity of the public debt into question, right? Because once they they don't do that, it's, it's rather hard for anybody else to sort of correct their error 
in a realistic way that doesn't cause all sorts of problems. I mean, whether it's the president having to break the law or the courts having to make decisions about unwinding transactions. So maybe that's a way of saying you shouldn't have these kinds of provisions in constitutions, that that's all got to be left to the political process, or that it's kind of, I'm fond of this idea from Robert Moses, you know, the, the, the famous builder in New York, profile by, or the profile by Robert Caro, who said, basically, once you start building a bridge, the courts aren't going to make you tear the bridge down, right? It's, it's too much to unwind it. So in the same way, once you have, uh, say, bonds are issued or spending is done or so on, the, the courts aren't going to make you undo that. So I guess that's a, 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 a practical version of constitutional law, right? Um, but it also might just say that those, those sorts of subjects just aren't really suitable for constitutional resolution in the way that, say, other things like rights or equality are. Professor Foner, returning to the Reconstruction era, what are your thoughts about the lessons of the original debate over Section 4 for today? Do you agree or disagree that the Reconstruction framers intended it primarily as a command to Congress rather than the courts? And how should Congress and the courts absorb those lessons today? Well, of course, the fifth section of the 14th Amendment, and the 14th Amendment is the longest amendment ever added to the Constitution. It's got a lot of content within it. The fifth section says that Congress will have the uh, authority to enforce this amendment. So they were certainly thinking of Congress. This was Congress enacting. Now, of course, the states had to ratify. They were thinking of Congress enforcing it somehow if if that was uh, required. The courts were not held in quite the degree of esteem back then as they may be by many people today. Uh, the shadow of the Dred Scott decision, which was anathema to large numbers of people in the North, uh, still hung over the court. Um, Chief Justice Tawney was still at the head of the court while the 14th Amendment was being uh, debated. And certainly Republicans in Congress were not interested in creating a situation where Chief Justice Tawney, the author of Dred Scott, was going to have uh, any significant influence on, uh, on how the government functioned or what the policies of Congress would be. Um, it's difficult for the courts to... Um, operate a budget or to, you know, levy taxes or spend money. Sometimes it happens. Uh, courts have required states to change their funding, uh, for example, of educational uh, institutions that uh, some, uh, some areas are getting less money than they need. And courts have sometimes said, no, this is, violates state constitutional law of equality or things like that and demanded or required the legislatures to um, to spend that money. I know that causes problems with state legislatures, but it has, uh, it has been done. But I think, um, you know, as I said, as we heard, there, there's not much uh, jurisprudence about Section 4, so it's pretty difficult to um, kind of figure out what the consequences would be uh, in terms of uh, it, how it would fit in with other federal policies of Reconstruction uh, if it had been actually implemented in any way during Reconstruction. Of course, it wasn't. The bonds, by the way, were paid back in gold, <laughs> the, the 520s. Um, 
the, the federal debt was not repudiated. But, that, but this issue has been floating around more at the state level from time to time. At the end of Reconstruction, there was a whole debate in Virginia by the so-called readjusters, which was a political party basically geared to not paying the debt of Virginia, which they claimed had been authorized in the wrong way. Go back 20 years, uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, was involved basically in a default by the state of Illinois that uh, uh, the Whigs, which he was a major uh, you know, uh, leader of, had spent so much money or had, or had issued so many bonds in Illinois to pay for uh, internal improvements or infrastructure, as we call it, railroads, canals, road building. I mean, all that is very uh, important for an economy, but they just didn't have the money to, to pay the bonds back and they defaulted. Um, didn't seem to make much difference in the long run. Actually, people kept loaning money to Illinois later on, even though they defaulted on their previous debt. Um, so this question of uh, who has the right to, to spend money and to borrow money and to pay back money is uh, has been debated at the state level. It just hasn't been figured out very uh, often at the federal level. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this great discussion. Professor Foner, tell we the people listeners what lessons history can teach us about our current debates about Section 4 and the debt crisis. <laughs> I have no idea what, what is going to happen. I can't believe that some settlement won't be reached uh, now. But of course, the Congress is uh, pretty polarized at the moment. We know that very well. Um, but, um, you know, this is we're in uncharted territory here, and uh, that makes it very difficult to know what's likely to happen. But it is almost impossible to imagine the United States, which is the economic bulwark of the world and the dollar is the world currency, in effect, uh, just defaulting and saying, I'm sorry, folks, we're out of money and uh, we can't do what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, we can't spend. We can't borrow. Uh, we, we just broke. Uh, that would uh, that would be quite a shift in American history, and I can't possibly imagine what the consequences would be. Professor Magliaca, final thoughts from you about the lessons of history for Constitution and the debt. Well, first, let me say it's a great honor to be here with Professor Foner, who is one of America's leading historians and whose work I've admired for a long time. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Secondly, I'll say Alexander Hamilton established the credit of the United States. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the national debt uh, can be a blessing and not a curse, right? Well, we're going to find out now because it's a blessing only if you pay the money back. And Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, as the Supreme Court explained in the 1930s, just confirmed this Hamiltonian understanding that Congress's power to borrow money is conditioned on paying the money back. And it's for Congress to figure this out. I mean, all of these other solutions, you know, trillion dollar coin or President Biden taking things uh, uh, on his own, the courts getting involved, uh, they're all interesting, but they're, they're all impractical, right? And, and so we just need Congress to do its job and honor the Constitution and follow what Alexander Hamilton put in at the beginning, which has worked extremely well 
for more than two centuries. So do your job. Thank you so much, Eric Foner and Gerard Magliaca, for a vigorous, historically informed, and illuminating discussion of the 14th Amendment, the Constitution, and the debt. Thank you both. You're very welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Today's episode was produced by Lana Ulrich and Bill Pollack. It was guest produced by Julia Redpath and engineered by Kevin Kilburn. Research was provided by Liam Kerr, Emily Campbell, Sophia Gardell, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please recommend We the People to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement of people like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.